Let's take God's word tonight and turn to the New Testament book of Jude. That's the book right next to the last book of the Bible. The last book of the Bible, of course, being the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then the book right before that is the book of Jude. And we'll just read together through the book of Jude. It's only one chapter long. And um, we'll take our sermon tonight from Jude, beginning in verse number one. If you'll turn there with me, please. Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter, verse one, reading down to the end. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them! For they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, 
and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word tonight. A short book, but a very, very pertinent and powerful book. It's a book that speaks about the latter days, the days in which we find ourselves now. It's a book that is very relevant. By the way, all of God's word is relevant towards us today. All of it. But this book, because it speaks expressly of the last days, is one that we ought to take heed to. And there's so much in it that we cannot possibly cover in one, one meeting. But I want to draw your attention really to one phrase. And from that phrase, we'll look at several of the surrounding verses. But it's found that the first opening phrase of verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, some of you tonight are not even in the love of God yet. And if that be the case, your one mission now is to get in the love of God. And we can talk about that in a moment. But this is written, we understand, to, the, to believers, to fellow uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. We understand that by what, how Jude opens the book. And speaking to those, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. That's the description of those who've been born again. We've been called by the grace and mercy of God. We are preserved in Christ Jesus and we are sanctified by God the Father. Sanctified, being made more and more like Christ as the days go on preserved in him, understanding all along the way that we belong to him. We love him because he first loved us. And this book is a very interesting book. The context in which Jude is writing is he's writing about the need that believers have today to contend or fight for the faith. Now, there's always in every generation been a need for God's people to contend, earnestly contend for the faith. 
And we need that even more so today. It's interesting. He says in verse 3, When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. Now, some people have imagined that what Jude was saying was, I was going to write to you about common salvation, but then I changed my mind, and instead I need to write to you about contending for the faith. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying in his thinking, in the need of writing to you of common salvation also comes hand in hand the need to contend for that understanding of that salvation, earnestly contending for it in every generation. And the context is, if you remember, he he warns the believers that just as Peter had told us, he says that uh, later on in the chapter, uh, but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own godly lust. Now, he says that after describing what the condition of the world will be. Now, we had this conversation at the beginning of the year. The men went away for a three-day prayer and fast. And as we were fasting together and praying together for three days, we opened up the scriptures. And one of the things that God revealed to us as we opened the word and prayed together was that the uh, the description of the last days would be less about blood moons and red heifers, but it would be more about really what the church looks like. Really a good indication of the last days is what the church looks like. Those false brethren who creep in unawares, the condition of the church is a great revealer of what the times in which we're living. And he speaks about, Peter spoke about it, Jude speaks about it, Paul spoke about it. In fact, he's writing about the condition of the church in 2 Peter chapter 3. And that's what Peter says, the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. Now think for a moment, Jude says, think about the words of the apostles And then the apostles say, think about the words of the prophets. It's one continuous word. There's not a new word here and there. It's one continuous link from the very beginning when God began to speak to the world, even right the way through till now. It's not a chopped up message. It's one continuous flowing message. And so he goes on and he says that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the prophets, knowing this first, verse 3, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And Peter makes an interesting observation that these scoffers are actually found in the church. These scoffers are actually found amongst professing believers because they refer to the fathers And they refer to the creation, which unbelievers don't refer to. Unbelievers don't refer to our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our unbelievers don't refer to that. Unbelievers don't refer to creation. So these scoffers are actually found within the body of Christ. And we're living in a day of scoffing. Scoffers have entered into the church of the living God and they have questioned every doctrine, every supernatural doctrine, especially of the scriptures. 
questioning the virgin birth, questioning the glorious resurrection of Christ, questioning his miracles, questioning his ability, questioning the infallibility of God's word, scoffer, 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 questioning creation itself. We have naturalized the supernatural. The church today has naturalized the supernatural. And there is no longer any need or reason for faith. And so Jude speaks of this. Right on down, really, verse number four, he speaks of certain men crept in unawares. They're ungodly men. In verse number eight, he says that these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. Verse 10, he says, but these speak evil. And verse 11, and he says, woe unto them, for they have gone. And verse 12, again, he says, these are spots in your feasts. And he goes on in verse 15 and verse 16, and he says, to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them. Verse 16, these are murmurers, complainers. We understand that these kinds of people will be present. But we're encouraged in the last few verses of this little book. But, verse 17, twice we find that that little uh, uh, admonition. Verse 17 and verse 20. Verse 17, but beloved. Verse 20, but ye beloved. There should be a difference between you and I and the scoffer. There ought to be a difference between you and I if we have been born again. Between us and the rest of those who call themselves Christians, but only serve him in word only, and not in deed and not in spirit. But ye, beloved, we've got to be different. If we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God, by the way, one of the indications of the last days is that there'll be a great falling away. In the last days, the love of many will grow cold. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. There'll be a great falling away. And so if we're going to ensure that we are actually those who belong to him, and then we have to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, I understand that salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. But I also understand that throughout the New Testament, there are certain commandments and admonitions that we ourselves ought to walk circumspectly, that we ourselves ought to keep ourselves in the love of God. There are these commands, although we, we rest in the power of God and in our walking and in our, in our obedience and in our keeping, we understand it's only by the grace and power of God. But yet we also understand that we have a responsibility that we shall stand before the King of Kings one day and no man will ever be able to look God in the eye and say, it's your fault that I didn't continue on. It's your fault that I fell away. No one will ever be able to do that. No one will ever be able to look at Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, and say, it's your fault that I'm not saved. No. No. And so, believer, we have this command to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, think with me for a second before we get into this. You. Look here for a second. You have a responsibility to keep yourself in the love of God. You cannot blame the pastor or the church or your husband or your wife or your children or your father or mother. You keep yourself in the love of God. Doesn't say you keep your neighbor in the love of God or you keep your children. No, no. You keep yourself. I can remember when I visited Joe's grandmother many years ago. We, 
I went there and a lovely dear woman, Sheila, and uh, an old, an old prayer warrior. And every time we'd go and she would oftentimes pray over the children and, and uh, pray God's blessing, but she'd always say a few little, a little, um, little sayings that stick with the children that stuck with me as well. Uh, and uh, one of them, she'd say, stay inside the circle of love. You remember that one, Joseph? I'm sure you do. Now I used to, we kind of used to chuckle. And when she'd say these little expressions, but what she was saying is exactly what Jude said. Keep yourself in the love of God. You have no one to blame should you walk out of it. No one to blame but yourself. What's he saying? Keep yourself in the love of God. First, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an intense responsibility for every believer to keep themselves. And here's what it means to keep yourself in the love of God. It means you are walking in knowledge, knowing that you are in Christ, and in Christ you are in the love of God. Yeah. Consciously walking in his love. It's not the idea that if you walk here that you're out of his love. You know, he, doesn't lo- he doesn't, no longer loves you. It's not what Jude is saying. Jude isn't saying that if you don't do this, then all of a sudden you lose the love of God. But what he is saying is you and I have got to walk circumspectly, always thinking, always reminding ourselves that we belong to God. That's why we're commanded to take unto you the helmet of salvation. That's, That's your mind. The helmet protects your mind. Salvation is that you belong to God because God loves you and he proved it by sending his son to die for you. So keeping yourself in the love of God is simply taking the helmet of salvation and consciously putting it on and consciously walking in his love. Do you do that? I think we live in a generation that is so very introspective. You know what I mean by that? We're always looking inside and second-guessing and questioning when we ought to be looking up and inside the Word. And you can second-guess yourself all you want to, but you need not second-guess Him. Because if He said it, He meant it. And our confidence must be in Him in his promises, and in his word. Now let's look together. Three practical things that he tells us about keeping ourselves in the love of God. But ye, verse number, well, let's back up to verse number 19. These be they who separate themselves. Now watch that. These evil men and seducers, these men who crept in unaware, they separate themselves. We keep ourselves in. They separate themselves from. Now, there's something wrong if you are constantly trying to get away from the things of God. There's something wrong if you're constantly trying to avoid the things of God. If you're constantly trying to get away from the people of God and get away from the word of God and get away from the prayer closet where you meet with God, then there's something wrong because the scriptures say, these be they who separate themselves. And look at the description of them. They're sensual. Fleshly, emotional, sensual, having not the spirit. It's interesting. But we, rather than separate ourselves, we keep ourselves in the love of God. They separate themselves, meaning in their mind, they're constantly doing all they can to think of anything but God. You watch that little device that rides in your pocket all day long. 
You watch that big uh, hunk of metal that's hanging on your living room wall that is keeping you from thinking and dwelling in the presence of God. You watch anything that is, according to the verse 19, separating you. Now, we're living in a generation where people are living separate from God, and yet they still think that they are with God. We live in a generation of people who, who live their entire week not even thinking of God. And then they come into a church service once or twice a week, and they imagine that that then qualifies them as a child of God. But why on earth would we ever imagine? Can you imagine? Let's go back to that illustration of marriage. Can you imagine if you, if you said to your husband or your wife, babe, I'll love you on Sunday for an hour or two anyways, and I'll love you on Wednesday night for an hour, but the rest of the week I'm going to love some other people. It's not going to work. Why do we think then that we have a relationship with Almighty God, but yet we don't even think about Him? Because our mind is so preoccupied. We have separated ourselves from God with a mobile phone and the television and and all sorts of other nonsense. We have totally become sensual rather than spiritual. We live and think sensually. We live in a sensual world. Everything. You can't even read some portions of the Bible anymore without thinking in a perverted way because of the culture in which we live. That's an indication of the sensual way in which our culture and society has become. And it is digressing worse and worse. And now they're teaching children four years old. They're now even saying, don't even, don't even call a child boy or girl when they're born. Let them uh, get older so they can decide for themselves. Such sensual nonsense. And that sort of, that is becoming more and more accepted in the church, so-called church. We're sensual, not spiritual. It's hard to have a spiritual conversation anymore, isn't it? It's hard to have a real conversation when you're speaking about the deep things of God, real spiritual things of God, because we're so flippant and sensual. It's a problem. All the while separating ourselves without even realizing it. But ye, beloved, we ought to be different. But ye, in contrast, ye, beloved, look what he says in verse 20, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Three things, building up yourselves. First step to keeping yourself in the love of God. Do you know why so many people doubt their salvation? Because they're not growing. Peter tells us this. So many people are doubting their salvation because they're not growing. And he tells us in, in 2 Peter, the Lord showed this to me when my wife and I, just before we moved over to England, and it was of God's great kindness that he revealed this to me. But in, in, two, in 2 Peter, he didn't, not like I had a big flash in the sky. I read some gospel uh, little booklet, and, it, and the Lord used it to in, encourage me and instruct me. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes about how we are given precious, exceeding great and precious promises. And by these promises, we are made partakers of the divine nature. We escape corruption that is in the world through lust. And he says, besides that, you need to give diligence. You need to work hard at adding to your faith. Now, as you look here for a moment, the average Christian never, ever adds to their faith. They think that by coming to a meeting that they're going to somehow, through, 
the, the, the process of osmosis is going to seep into their minds and into their hearts, and they're going to become automatically, in a swirling magical way, a more spiritual human being. That's rubbish. You have to add to your faith. Just like the idea some people imagine, if I put on the Bible being read to me when I go to sleep, and may I wake up in the morning with more biblical knowledge. There's no shortcut. There's no easy way out. And he says here, add to your faith. And he gives seven things, virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and charity. And if these seven things be in you and they abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things, if you don't add them, if you do not intentionally give effort to growth, The Bible says you'll be blind, you cannot see afar off, and have forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Am I really saved? Have my sins really been washed away? Blind, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm at, I can't see afar off. Because there's no growth, you're not building yourself up. That word edification is something found throughout the New Testament. It refers to building up. Paul writes to the church at Colossae in Colossians 2 verse 6. And he says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. That's a command. Walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Rooted, built up established, abounding. Is that you tonight? Are you rooted in Christ? Are you rooted in the word? Are you then building up? By the way, if you don't have the roots, if it's just surface level only, it's just a matter of time before it comes crashing down. Are you rooted in him? And then are you building up? Are you being built up in Christ? Are you established in the faith? And are you abounding? God wants you to abound. God wants you not to be a casual, nominal, halfway Christian. He wants you to be abounding in the faith. Not living subpar. Not living below the expectation. He wants you to abound. He doesn't want a few little Christians to shine as bright stars. He wants all of us to. Abound. But you're not going to have it if you're not building up yourself. How do you build up yourself? How do you grow? How does it happen? Well, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens by getting into this book. Are you neglecting the word of God? Are you neglecting time and prayer? It happens by actively serving and obeying the Lord. You can't sit around and just hope that, you know, it's going to happen. Are you devouring the word? Do you spend time in the word? Do you study the word? Oh, the Lord really gave me an encouraging verse this week in Psalm 119. Let me share it with you, please. I shared it uh, in Carlisle the the other night. But in Psalm 119, listen to this verse, 162. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. Did you catch that? I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. Now, that's the idea of a pirate going to a, a city and, and spoiling the city. Now, it doesn't happen. Did the, did the city leave its gates open wide and say, come on, in pirates, take whatever you want? 
Is that how it works? Is that how you get great spoil? No, it takes effort and labor and work and it doesn't give way at first shot. And so it is at the word of God. You know why we don't get anything out of the word of God? Because we read a chapter a day and we expect God to jump out from the page and, and, and flash a message in the sky. We don't search the scriptures. We don't study the scriptures. We don't look for nuggets of truth. Believe me, there's a great spoil, great treasure in that book. The Bible says that it's, it's the, it pleases God to hide things and it's the glory of kings to search them out. Search. Search for it. Oh, there's great treasure. The greatest treasure in the world is in the pages of this book. That's how we build ourselves up. You ever been reading the word and God just laid by the, by almost, by divine the revelation, like a light shining from heaven on a verse and your eyes were open and your heart was stirred and you thought, what an amazing truth. And then you went to try to share it with somebody and they looked at you like you were strange. You ever been there before? That's because God gave that to you. God gave it to you. And that's, that's to encourage, to build you up, to edify you. I've oftentimes been studying the word and I thought, this is amazing. That's going to be a great sermon. I got to preach and everybody looked at me like I, I lost my mind. That was for me, for my own edification. And God wants to do that every single day. He wants to feed us and build us up. But you're never going to get it if you don't open the book. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I love this little verse. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says there in verse number 12 of 1 Corinthians 3, speaking about the day that you and I as believers shall stand before him. He says, now if any man, verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rock upon which he built his church. And there's no other foundation besides Jesus. Now if any man build on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is we're building. So take heed, be careful what you use to build on. Child of God, build up yourselves. I love this on your most holy faith. In it is good, but on it, we have a foundation. And that is Christ. Build on Him. Now, there's a second thing he says. Not just building up ourselves, but building up ourselves on the most holy faith, but praying in the Holy Ghost. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Now, this is not the first time in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, that we find this expression. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in, in chapter 6 and verse number 18, and he said, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. There's a difference between praying in the Spirit and just saying your prayers. There's a difference between just Reading your list before God like he is Santa Claus and you're some child at Christmas time. There's a difference between doing that and being led by God's spirit as you pray. Some of us don't even know the voice of God's spirit. We don't know the prompting of God's spirit. We don't, we don't know what it is. I love what Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says in chapter 8 verse 26, Likewise, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities. That's our feebleness and our frailties. I met a man recently who came to faith in Christ. I was very encouraged in Carlisle. There's a woman 30 years ago who God saved. And when she was converted, her husband got very angry because he thought the church had taken his wife from him. 
And he went, he vowed he'd never walk into the door of that church in Carlisle. He'd never ever hear of religion again because church and religion took his wife. 30 years down the road, God saved his soul this week at the tent mission. Isn't that amazing? His wife convinced him to come one night. She said, come here. These Americans, they're different. Maybe he thought he was getting a show. I'm not sure. But he came out anyways, and the Lord began to soften his heart. He came the second night, and at the end of the second night, he came and talked to one of the men, and he said, I don't do this kind of a thing. I want you to know, but I want to talk to you about this. And the last night of the mission, the very last night, I preached a couple of times about come. And the last night I preached from Isaiah chapter 1, come now, let us reason together. And he ran out of the tent. He said, I'm coming. I'm coming. And by faith, he asked the Lord Jesus to save him. 30 years. Think about that. 30 years. What an amazing thought. But people were weeping and praying for his soul. His dear wife for 30 years was seeking the Lord for his salvation. Matthew Henry said that prayer is the nurse of faith. Is your faith weak? Pray. Pray in the Holy Ghost. He helps our infirmities, our weakness. He said to me that night when he, when he came to, to place his faith in the Lord, he said, I don't really know how to pray. I said, don't you worry because the Spirit of God will help us. He helps our weaknesses. And he prayed away. Prayed away. Evidently helped. He helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Praying in the Holy Ghost means he leads us as we pray. He prompts us as we pray. We wait on him. We don't simply bring a list before him. Maybe that's how you start. But we wait on his guidance. We wait on his leading. You ever been praying before and you just sense the Lord just guiding you and you begin praying for someone and you you parked it there for a while? You ever been there before? That's praying in the Holy Ghost. Bible says that this is, this is really the prayer that, that makes a difference. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, continuing instant in prayer. It ought to be praying under his guidance constantly, praying without ceasing. It ought to become more than just a one hour in the morning kind of a thing, but we ought to learn to walk that way. That's why we're told that if we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God, we must build ourselves up and we must learn to pray in the Holy Ghost moment by moment throughout the day. We, got, we need to learn to be directed by him. You can't learn to be directed by God's spirit if you only talk to him once in the morning. Praying in the Holy Ghost is learning to, as you walk through the day, talking to him, looking to him for guidance. Lord, help us. Should we go up here? Should we do a couple of times a day? Me and, me and a brother, we just stopped and prayed. Lord, if it be thy will, let us in. Sure enough, we made it into the hospital room to see this man and pray with him. Lord, if it be thy will, and asking constantly, trying to walk in his guidance, praying in the Holy Ghost. And then he says something else, building up yourselves in your most, on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ 
unto eternal life. Looking. Can I tell you something? There are, there are one, one million billion distractions in this world to keep you from looking at God. There are so many distractions that are trying, that Satan is trying to use to take your eyes off of those things which are heavenly and to think on those things which are sensual and earthly. And we are commanded to look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life because mercy is that very first step, you could say, in many ways of our journey of salvation. Mercy keeps us from getting what we deserve. Mercy is new every morning so that when you wake up today, you didn't get what you deserve. And tonight, if you are lost and you've never been saved, it's the mercy of God that drug you in here tonight. You may think your father or mother or your brother or sister or your husband or wife brought you here. It was the mercy of God that grabbed you by the scruff of the neck and walked you in the door tonight so that you might understand that you are on your way to an eternal life of destruction. And God in his mercy... God in his mercy stepped in. The Bible says, looking, I love this, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You need salvation. The child of God, we keep looking for that mercy. It's promised to us daily. Did you know that? It's fresh mercy. Today's mercy is not yesterday's mercy. It's fresh. And so we keep looking for it. Keep looking for evidences and demonstrations of God's mercy. It's a constant reminder that, hey, I belong to God. Do you know that? You ever, you ever felt that way? You ever felt like, God, thank you. That was your mercy that I didn't get that. That didn't happen to me. Maybe you're driving down the road and something happened and you just breathe. Thank you, Lord. That was your mercy again. Evidences of his love and his care that you belong to him. And that's another way that you keep yourself in the love of God. You look for evidences of his mercy in your life. Mercy. I love that has something to do with the second coming. We know that because that's what the scriptures say in the, in the previous verses. We, we, we read about this in verse number 17. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before. And he goes on and speaks about the second, the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's something we must look for. That's what he says in verse number 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Looking, we're told somewhere else, looking for our Savior, the coming of our Lord and Savior. Looking for his mercy. Looking for him. Constantly eyes above, not below. Can I tell you there's such darkness in this world? There is such darkness in this world. And if you're not careful, if your eyes are not where they ought to be, my friend, you will be captivated. You'll be hypnotized by the darkness of this world that you cannot see the light of Christ. Peter told us in 2 Peter 3 verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And he said in verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Are you looking for that day and hasting, running towards that day? Look, would you look here for a moment? I'm going to close with this thought. You and I, our entire life ought to be a direction, a constant running towards the coming of Christ. 
You know what we do sometimes? We oftentimes we build our lives are built up about getting a new car and we're, we're running to that direction. We're getting a degree at university. We're running in that direction or getting an upgrade on this. And all of our energy and effort is, is going after that. And Peter says, your energy and effort, we ought to be running, hastening to the coming of the Lord. That's urgency and with urgency and zeal and energy and passion, we ought to be pushing for the coming of Christ. Are you ready for that? Keep yourself, that's one way to keep yourself in the love of God. Believe me, if you lived running towards, hastening to the coming of the Lord, you'll be kept in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing our final hymn here in just a moment. Let's pray. Come join me. We'll pray together. That's okay. Don't worry. He's okay. No problem. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for thy great love towards us, and that it is a love that continues. We thank thee, Lord, that we cannot escape it. We can't get away from it. But help us in our own minds to be kept in that love. Help us, I pray, in a world of such distractions to be kept in thy great love. Oh, Lord, I pray that we might learn what it is to Build up ourselves in our most holy faith. Give us a deeper love for this book, for thy word. Help us to learn how to pray. Teach us to pray. To pray without ceasing. To pray in the Holy Ghost. We thank thee, Lord, that sometimes when we don't know what to pray, that thy spirit helps our infirmities. We thank thee, Lord, I pray as well, that we might learn what it is to be looking. Looking for that mercy evidences of salvation, looking for that day when thy son will return. Oh, Lord, may all of our life and thoughts and being be directed and hastening towards that day. Make us ready, we pray. Seal these things in our hearts. I pray for those tonight who are lost, who aren't ready for that day. They're not ready to stand before thy son in judgment. Oh, Lord, I pray that this evening in mercy, their eyes may be opened. They may perhaps for the first time look face to face at mercy and recognize thy hand of goodness in their life. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.